Welcome to another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein. Founded in 1992, the Innocence Project is the number one organization working for criminal justice reform in the United States. Its mission? To free those who have been wrongly convicted of serious crimes. The Deputy Executive Director of the Innocence Project is my guest today. Attorney Merrill Schwartz, who joined the organization in 2012, leads the work of the legal team, policy advocates, and research staff. It's a perfect match because Merrill has always focused on issues rooted in income inequality, including criminal and juvenile justice and education reform, youth development, and workforce development. She's been the portfolio manager at the Blue Ridge Foundation New York, a venture philanthropy that supports nonprofits working to reduce poverty, director of strategic planning at the Center for Alternative Sentencing and Employment Services, and director of planning at the Vera Institute of Justice. She began her professional career as a staff attorney at the Legal Aid Society and the HIV Law Project at South Brooklyn Legal Services. Meryl, welcome, and thanks for joining me today. Thank you for inviting me. Did you always want to go into the law? Uh, No. I knew as a uh, Jewish kid growing up in Queens that I had the privilege of becoming a professional, and as a woman, um, that I could step out and become a professional. So I didn't know what a professional was. I but you knew you could be one. <laughs> I knew I could be one, and so I thought, I'll be what my father is, and my father is an accountant. So I started off, actually, um, in accounting school, and I learned very, very quickly that it was a ridiculous choice, and so I came home terrified to tell my parents that I wasn't going to be an accountant. So you went and to so college said, thinking you were going to major exactly. in accounting. Well, it wasn't something I was well-suited for, and uh, I went to SUNY Binghamton, mm-hmm. and you were allowed to take, I think it was something like eight out of eight courses in the course of your four years there outside of the business school, and I had taken six by the end of my first year. <laughs> that so it was, it was clear this was a bad idea. Anyway, I went home, and I said, to my parents, I'm not going to be an accountant, but don't worry, I'm going to be a lawyer. And that is the day I announced I was going to be a lawyer. There were no other visions. It was your, you'd be a professional, so I became a lawyer. So you go to law school and you graduate. And were you always drawn early on to the nonprofit sector? Absolutely. I think, you know, because I became a lawyer and probably I should have become an activist, I Mm. merged those two and became an activist lawyer. So when I went to law school, I actually went to CUNY Law School at Queens College. Which is the City University of New York. Correct. Mm -hmm. I am a product of public education from kindergarten through law school and a big proponent of public education. And very proud of it. And Very proud of Mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. Um, The New York City Public Schools, actually, in New York State. But I went to CUNY on purpose. Um, CUNY was opened the year prior to me starting there um, to be a law school for people who wanted to practice in the public interest. And so my choice was to put my body where my mouth was and to go to a law school that was designed for people who wanted to do the work I wanted to do. So it was a very obvious step to graduate law school and go into legal services. Yeah. um, Actually, my first summer... When I was a law student, I was working at um, a legal aid office in Harlem um, doing civil legal services, and uh, one of the lawyers said to me, he said, you know, whatever you do your first summer, that's what you become. And I thought, ah, what does he know? That's, that makes no sense. And in fact, my first job out of law school was at the Legal Aid Society doing civil legal services. And much of what that experience and what I learned in those years as a legal aid lawyer has fueled the kind of work 
that I've done for all the years after. So he couldn't have been more right about how that experience set me on a course of learning about things that I've then used the rest of my life to do what I hope has been meaningful work. I'd like to move into your next job at the HIV Law Project. Describe what that is and what year was that? Uh, asking me what year is a little tough, okay, but, but I'm going to guess a- it was roughly in the early 90s. And so it was, yes, it was in the heart of the AIDS, the AIDS crisis. Yes. Absolutely. Okay, that's where I was and going. And what I did was um, profoundly sad. I represented oh. women um, who were dying because back then you died when you had AIDS. There were no cocktails. Um, and I represented women who had no alternatives for their children. And so we did um, permanency planning for people who didn't have people to leave their children to. So we put them in foster care or we found legal guardians for them. And we helped those um, women die knowing that their children would be cared for. They were, for the most part, single 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 moms. moms. Yeah. Uh Yeah. How long were you there? Um, I did that for, I'm going to guess, two or three years. I don't actually remember the Was that just a very, very, very tough... Yeah. You should get up every day and go to work to do that, even though you were... I mean, you were performing this extraordinary public service, but I just can't imagine what that was. It was very sad. I mean, it was very sad. Your clients died. And so then what happened to you after that? The next place I worked is um, a a place well known in New York City for its work as the Vera Institute of Justice. Yes, hugely famous. So I, I went to Vera because it was an interesting moment. Vera was looking for somebody to think about a problem that was facing the child welfare system, well connected to HIV, but also well connected to another scourge of New York at the time, which was crack. And we had a child welfare system that was overflowing with children who the city couldn't handle. They didn't know where to put them. They didn't have enough foster families for them. And at the time, the city was um, basically giving them to their relatives, to grandmoms, aunts, and and others. But they were doing it in a way that was um, complicated. And some of these families were merely getting public assistance to support their grandchildren. And some of these families were getting foster care benefits, which were far more valuable to the families. And it was creating a crisis both for government and for families. And Vera was interested in that problem and what could be done to sort of create a solution to that problem and was interested in the guardianship law. Well, there were only a handful of people in New York City at the time who were using the guardianship law. And one of the groups of people doing that were HIV lawyers who were using the guardianship law to find homes for these children. So it was a natural move. So it was a great move. Mm. And I loved being a lawyer because I loved working with individual people and helping people work work through what were always crises. You didn't get to be a lawyer um, and, and join families in their happy moments for the most part. When we began doing this work at Vera, I was tired of a new person sitting down in my office bringing me the same problem that I had seen in the face and in the eyes of the person before them. And while it was tremendously satisfying to solve that problem for them, it was just an unending stream of people who were just going to be coming in with the same problem. And Vera offered me the opportunity to ask a different question, which is rather than sticking my finger in the dike, could I fix the wall? 
Wow. And so that was, um, you know, a real a real change for me. Was and to, challenge. And challenge to move from working on the cases of individuals to thinking about systems and government and how government could solve problems on behalf of you know, large numbers of people. I mean, government is the largest deliverer of services. And so the solutions lie in that ability to mass distribute services. I worked on and off with Vera for 10 years, Mm -hmm. um, but I worked uh, full-time for a number of years, and then I worked for them as a consultant, among others. Um, Vera created part of what we did was we we built these demonstration projects. We tested them with robust research along the way, and when they worked, we institutionalized them. And so it worked really nicely for those of us who were there is that we got to know this group of nonprofits working in the largely criminal justice space in New York. Um, and then I actually spent many years working as a consultant to the family of Vera Projects and Vera itself. If you're just joining us, my guest today is Meryl Schwartz, who's the Deputy Executive Director of the Innocence Project. So that's a nice segue to the Innocence Project, which was started in 1992 by Barry Sheck of O.J. Simpson fame and Peter Neufeld. Why did they form this organization? Barry and Peter had been um, legal aid lawyers, and they were working on a case um, where DNA suggested that it was relevant. And so they invited some DNA scientists in to help them understand what the DNA showed. Um, help Barry and, and Peter. Peter. And and this was a, a case that they had tried in the Bronx. Um, and Barry was um, uh, at some point working at Cardoza Law School, um, where the Innocence Project actually was formed as a law clinic. Um, and, and the work led to the notion that DNA could actually um, prove the innocence of an individual by identifying whose whose biological material was left at the scene of the crime. Um, and there were other lawyers around the country sort of playing with this same possibility. Um, and as the work grew, Barry, Peter, law students, and, and as I said, others around the country were able to begin to prove that um, people were wrongfully convicted, that the system was getting it wrong in profoundly serious cases, cases where people were sentenced to death, cases where people were sentenced to life, and that they actually were innocent. And what is the extraordinary thing about beginning this work with DNA is that when we work on a case, we are using cases where the biological material is so central to the nature of the crime, and for the most part, these are sexual assaults, where the biological material left at the crime scene it reveals the identity of the perpetrator. And so in many of these cases, we actually, through the DNA, um, are able to identify the actual perpetrator. And the power of this is to be able to silence critics who would say, no, 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 he really did do it. Is Because everybody said he did it. Right, because we, we got the right guy. But in fact, the DNA shows they didn't. Hmm. And that opens up the lever by using the notion of actual innocence to be able to let people back up and look at these cases to teach us something about how flawed this system is. And then we've used the growing number of these cases and looked at them to see what 
patterns we could see from them to identify um, what are some of the contributing causes to wrongful conviction and then have uh, one of the teams that I, I lead at the Innocence Project is a team of policy advocates who work around the country to help police departments um, and, and states by legislating and or just choosing to adopt reforms that we know protect innocent people when they come up against the system by ensuring that the evidence that is collected and used is reliable and is collected in ways that is most likely to be reliable and accurate. DNA evidence is irrefutable. Correct. With enormous subtlety behind that notion. What does because, that mean? Um, DNA evidence is it, it's complicated. We are increasingly able through modern technology to um, pull DNA pro- profiles off of um, more and more um, substrates. So, for example, the DNA evidence that you find inside of a rape kit is very likely going to tell you a lot of information about who deposited that DNA. And it is likely going to come from one or two or maybe three sources. So you'll always have the victim's DNA, you will have a perpetrator's DNA, and you might have a consensual sex partner's Uh DNA. That's one scenario. But when you start testing DNA um, on doorknobs, where lots of people have touched them, you have a much more complicated scenario. So while we at the Innocence Project are looking for cases where you're looking at a much more simple scenario, it would be remiss for me to suggest that um, uh, it's not complicated when we use DNA. 1992 seems so recent. Science is constantly evolving, and our ability to understand the world by by looking at science is constantly changing. But that said, we have to really explore the underpinnings of scientific principles before we can rely on them in courts. So one of the pieces of, of work that's very significant for us is exposing the use of flawed science to convict people. Like? So, for example, um, people in this country have been convicted of crimes based on Bite marks, and that is when a mark on the skin of a victim is determined by um, an individual, typically known as a forensic odontologist, to be teeth marks. Um, and those people um, claim that they can match the marks on that victim's body to an individual's dentition. Now, that has been used in countless courts across this country as the sole physical evidence to link a person to a crime scene for which and they've been convicted. Well, we had an exoneration not more than six months ago in Virginia of a man named Keith Harwood, who was convicted of a brutal rape and homicide. A couple were attacked in their home in Virginia. The wife was raped and the husband was murdered. And Mr. Harwood was convicted based on bite marks. Um, Mr. Harwood was uh, actually serving in the Navy at the time um, and based on a ship. Um, And it was pretty clear that the person who had committed the crime because the wife survived and was able to make some identification, although she never identified Mr. Harwood, may have been associated with the Navy. So he spent over 30 years in prison. We were able to find DNA from the crime scene, including the rape kit, and it did not come back to Mr. Harwood. It came back to another man who had subsequently died um, while in prison for committing other crimes. And Mr. Harwood was immediately exonerated 
because he didn't commit that crime. But he was convicted based on the notion that you could look at a mark on skin. Well, there's no scientific proof that you can do that. To back it up. There's mm-hmm. none. And, and when you just think of it logically, the idea that skin, particularly skin that is on a body that is now, that, has, that is dead, um, where we all can imagine changes shape and changes in its elasticity, can hold that mark. That, that's one problem, right? Can the substrate hold the mark? The second problem is, who's to say that Sandy's teeth and my teeth are different. We know DNA is unique. We have no reason to know that 10 people don't have the same shape of their teeth. So the idea that you can even match and suggest that those marks, assuming the substrate could even hold it, belong to an individual is ludicrous. But this kind of what, what, what some people will refer to as junk science, this kind of science, so to speak, has never been validated scientifically. And yet courts have let it in and allowed people to languish in prison, people who are, in fact, innocent. But you take this Harwood case, for example, and what screwed him, in addition to this testimony by this forensic professional, is the fact that the victim could not identify him. You know, well, that's his case I mean, is unique. She never identified him. It is correct that over 70% of the DNA exonerations were based on a witness misidentification. Which is apparently awfully common, right? Very common. And one of the things that we work very hard to do around the country is to ensure that when police do lineups, and obviously the lineup and uh, witness identification is a huge tool for law enforcement, and we're not suggesting that it's not an important tool, but that it be done in a manner that we know is consistent with what we know from years and years of psychological research around memory and vision. And so it, there, are, there are several principles that are so important that the police procedures embody these pr- principles to reduce the likelihood of a misidentification. You know, in my doing some research, I, I'm, I'm assuming these statistics are current. If they're not, please correct me. That 344 people in this country have been exonerated thanks to you guys, to the Innocence Project. 344 people have been exonerated based on DNA. Um, the Innocence Project actually worked on um, over half of those cases. But um, there is an additional collection of exonerations, a database called the National Registry of Exonerations, which I believe at the moment has somewhere in the range of 1,600 exonerations. Mm. I had a feeling 344 was a a, a small number. Right. Those are DNA. Okay, DNA. And in that same statistic, the average prisoner served about 14 years. I mean, Harwood is, you know, two and a half times, more than two times that. That 20 of them were on death row. That's correct. Oh, my God. Right. That 20... Men, and I'm assuming women too, walked out of death row because of you guys. Well, again, we worked on those cases with partners around the country. Okay, but yes, yeah. mm-hmm. it is. there is no doubt that um, these were innocent people who were on death row. If you're just joining us, my guest today is Meryl Schwartz, who's the deputy executive director of the Innocence Project. Share some more stories. And also, how do you guys get matched? So we get about 200 letters a month from people we've never heard from. And we have thousands and thousands of letters um, of people who are requesting our assistance. And so it's a 
a pretty complicated process, what we do, because we, again, are looking for crimes where DNA evidence will prove the innocence of the defendant. So it's somewhat of a needle in a haystack, particular types of crimes, particular types of events that occurred. There are um, 53 innocence projects, uh, maybe it's 55 now, in the United States that do the same work we do, representing individuals. Many of those projects, uh, most of those projects, also represent people um, who can prove their innocence where DNA is not at the center of the case. Is the Innocence Project in New York City the headquarters of the Innocence Project. So the Innocence okay. Project is the headquarters of something called the Innocence Network, which is a collection of these many projects. Many of these projects um, were created by, you know, not by, they weren't created by us. They were created, um, about half of them are in law schools as legal clinics in the same way that we are associated with Cardozo Law School. And the other um, portion are independent nonprofits. Um, most of them work only in a single state. We are the only national project. We also carry much of the national work by doing the policy work around the country. We are the largest of them by many fold. But that said, they are all doing the same important work um, on behalf of individuals. So people do write to us. We investigate their cases to determine whether or not DNA will prove innocence. And that involves finding um, paperwork from their cases. So original police reports and other documentation that will give us a sense of whether or not biology is so central to the crime. But once we accept a case, we start on this other really complicated journey, which is finding the biological evidence in order to subject it to DNA testing. So if you imagine that we receive thousands and thousands of inquiries, we are years behind at looking at these cases, and these cases are very old because people can't write to us. We can't look at their cases until after they've exhausted their appeals because it's only post-conviction that we can get back into court on their behalf. And so the cases can be 10 years old. They can be 30 years old. And we are looking for literally the evidence that was collected from the crime scene at the time of the crime in the number of states that we work in, which is 43, our colleagues um, in all the states. And it is a matter of whether or not the police department in that state has a policy of preserving the evidence. So think what happened in New Orleans when Katrina came through. Well, the evidence rooms were destroyed. And so what what that means for an individual who's claiming innocence and their case rests on proving their innocence by DNA is that it probably was ruined. It got wet. It got washed away. And they no longer have biological evidence that can be subjected to testing that might prove their innocence. So those are really, really, really tragic cases Um, and, you know, describes a little bit, I think, about the complexity of what it is that we do. Any case in particular just really stand out to you? Well, I'll tell you a story of a case that we just won, which is an extraordinary case because of how hard we fought and for how long we fought and for how how strong our client um, had to have been to have endured this. So the the client is um, a gentleman named Anthony Wright, um, and Tony was convicted of rape and homicide in Philadelphia. And um, an elderly woman was raped and murdered in her home, and Tony was picked up mostly because he had had some, um, 
you know, he, he didn't get along with his the local beat cops, um, and they knew him, and they didn't like him because uh, I, I don't even recall the circumstances, but not because he had a prior criminal record, not because um, anything substantial in his history, but because they didn't like him too much. Anyway, they picked him up, and they... Um, they managed to um, extract a confession that said that he had committed these crimes. And he immediately recanted and he proclaimed his innocence. And he was tried with capital murder in Philadelphia. He was convicted of the murder, but for a holdout juror, was not sentenced to death. So had that happened, Tony surely would have been executed. But thank God he wasn't because um, DNA has proven his innocence. So we got the case, when it came on this case, I don't know, give or take 14 years ago. And we fought for many years to get DNA testing in his case because Tony had confessed. He wasn't entitled to confess to testing under the uh, Pennsylvania DNA testing statute. And we fought that up to the Supreme Court of Pennsylvania and ultimately were able to obtain DNA testing. Well, when we did the testing, we were fortunate enough to find the crime scene evidence. And what was central to Tony's conviction was this confession. And in the confession, it said that he was wearing clothing that the police claimed to have found in his home. And all along, his mom said that those weren't his clothes that she bought him all his clothes and he never wore those clothes and they couldn't have been his clothes. And he said, they weren't my clothes. I don't know what you're talking about. So we tested the clothing. And because clothing often retains the wearer's DNA, we tested the inside of the clothing everywhere where a wearer's DNA would have been found. And lo and behold, we discovered that the clothing belonged to the victim. To the woman? To the woman. So that was odd, and all it su- and it suggested that that clothing never was really in Tony's apartment, uh, family home. Someone had claimed that it had been there, and that the confession no longer made any sense because they weren't his clothing. We also tested the sex assault kit and discovered that the semen that was found inside of this elderly woman had been deposited by a man who abused crack. Um, who was known to the police, who was um, living in a crack house right nearby, who was an older man and was never known in any way to be an associate of Tony Wright's. He died before we were able to meet him and to ask him about that. But we had some pretty compelling evidence at that point that Tony could not have committed this crime. All that evidence was presented to the district attorney in Philadelphia, and they refused to do anything about it. They, their position at this point was, well, Tony was there and he was part of this crime. Long story short, the case, w- the, the conviction was vacated. And um, often when that happens, the district attorney will agree that they don't have enough evidence to pro- re-prosecute the case. However, in this case, they chose to retry Mr. Wright. And in, uh, over the course of this summer, he was retried in front of a jury in Philadelphia. Two-week case. Everybody testified who was still alive um, as to what occurred. Well, the jury found him not guilty literally within minutes. 
And not only did they find him not guilty, they were so upset that this had gone on that they all stayed after the court was dismissed to meet him. And they were unable to meet him that day because he wound up being discharged from the prison, which was not nearby. So I think it was nine of the jurors returned the next day to his lawyer's offices to meet him and to say how absolutely horrified they were that this had abs- had happened to him. Mm. So it's an extraordinary story of the recalcitrance of a district attorney to do the right thing when compelled with overwhelming evidence of innocence. But the last thing I want to say about the case is that we've had the pleasure, our lawyers obviously know Tony very well, but those of us who work in the office... We have a habit of meeting all of the clients as soon as we can. And he came up to the office recently, and there were 70 of us in a room to meet with him. And it is the grace and the strength of these people who have endured such extraordinary suffering and who come through it with such extraordinary dignity that makes it possible for us to get up every day with hope in our hearts to keep doing this work. And he is really one of the shining examples, as many of our clients are, of this extraordinary power to fight um, and to fight without hate, but to fight with hope. And to have on his side dedicated, committed people like yourself. Who funds you? Uh, We're funded by um, uh, individuals, foundations, donors. Meryl, Thank you for the work that you do. As I sat here, and I'm not saying in awe of you, but I'll say it, in awe of you. I mean, the commitment again and the dedication and the feeling that we've got to right the wrongs. What a Herculean task. And it's for people like you that we're all so grateful. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk to you. Well, I can't thank you enough for coming. Join us for another edition of Conversations with Creative Women, and please go to our iTunes store page and leave a rating and a review. And if you know anyone you think that we should interview, contact us at sandykleinshow.com. Oh,